This is Friends and Benefits, a podcast hosted by Reward Strategies editor Amber Ainsley Pritchard. And you may have guessed it, her Friends and Benefits. Stay tuned to find out what's hot, what's not, and what's happening in the world of pay and reward. Welcome back to the Friends and Benefits podcast. With all that's been going on in the world, this little old thing called a pandemic, we've had a short break from producing episodes but we are back. For those new listeners, I am Amber Ainsley Pritchard, editor of Reward Strategy, and this is our podcast, Getting to Know the People in the People Profession. Myself and today's guests are working from home, but not together, of course. We are in separate bubbles. So joining me virtually is Christina Batua-Mira, Head of Reward and Benefits at the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children or as many of you will know it, the NSPCC, a charity campaigning and working in child protection in the UK and Ireland. Welcome to Friends and Benefits, Christina. How are you? Hi, Amber. I'm fine, thank you. And well done for saying my name so well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I got it right. I hope I got it right. (laughs) As we speak, England is still in lockdown. How are you finding it all? I suppose, I think probably like most people, it's it's a surreal time, you know, just going through those kind of groundhog days every day and probably doing more cleaning and stuff like that than I normally would mm-hmm. and organising around the house. So it has it has been and continues to be a very a very strange time. But it's but it's been good. I joined um, the NSPCC just as we went into lockdown. So that was an experience in terms of joining an organisation where you're not actually going to be meeting people for quite some time. But that's been really good as well. I mean, I've seen them working in in ways that are really inspirational in terms of coming together, doing things differently, really trying to to work through the pandemic to sort of still be there for children, deliver all those important services. It must be really strange joining a company where you can't really meet everyone or go for work, drinks, you know, at the start of joining it is a strange time to be getting to know people and and obviously I haven't got to know them in the in the traditional sense and there's been no sort of after work drinks and things like that I'm certainly one for socializing so it's nice to kind of have those informal catch ups either after work or even in 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 between meetings so that there hasn't really been that but then again I think I've probably ended up meeting more people and working with more people across the organisation than I would have normally. So I think because of the types of things that we've been having to do, you know, most organisations, I imagine, in the same same position where you're doing things for the first time, you're doing things differently. So I've actually, I think, got to know more people than I would have done otherwise. And I've got to be involved in lots of really interesting pieces of work. So I've actually learned about the organisation probably more quickly than than I normally would have. So it has been great. I think also just seeing the passion and all the energy that everyone's really, you know, channeled into delivering all the services that people deliver, you know, how they've gone above and beyond and got creative, all that kind of stuff. I've really seen that. So it's a great, it's nice to see the organisation in that way. Yeah, fantastic. So it definitely has some perks doing things from behind the screen and from away in the office space. But before we get too stuck into COVID-19 sort of content, I just wanted to take a step back and find out a bit more about you and how you found yourself in the reward profession. Yeah, so so I can't say it was by design. I didn't have a master plan, but and I've had lots and lots of different jobs throughout my career. But I think what got me into the reward profession was really a few sort of key opportunities that came my way. 
Um, in particular, when I was working at King's College London, I had some great opportunities there and worked with some really good people. So I just just took advantage of those opportunities that came up. And then, you know, channeled, you know, all my energies into that, learnt and, you know, gathered that sort of expertise. And then as I did that, I really sort of was able to, I think, again, because of the organisations I was in, I was able to sort of influence and shape the remit. So to make it a little bit more what I wanted. So it wasn't by design, but it was a great, there were great opportunities working with some great people. And I've been able to sort of shape it into something that really works for me. I think that's quite often the case with this profession that people sort of don't necessarily choose it as a career path, but find themselves on it and enjoy it. Hmm. Exactly. And it, the scope of it is actually quite big. So you can take it in a very narrow way, you know, and focus more on the, the pay side, the benefit side, you know, you can take it in a quite narrow way. But then at the same time, you know, it actually covers a real breadth of, of areas of influence. So if you start looking at it in that context, then there's huge opportunities there and, and real ways that you can impact on the business and then also on people as well. So, it, you know, I think. I think that's what I really enjoy most about it. And you've worked, as you mentioned, at King's College London and the London Borough of Brent, but also before you joined NSPCC, you were at the Alzheimer's Society. Is there anything particular about sort of public sector and not-for-profits that draws you to working for them? Yeah, I mean, before I worked at those organisations, I was in the private sector. So I spent quite a few years in the private sector and was self-employed for a while as a consultant. And I think it was... As I was working at King's, I think in particular, that I started to, I started to sort of realize what was important to me, what motivates me and what makes me satisfied in terms of jobs. And it was around the organizational purpose. So working at King's, working at Alzheimer's Society and now at the NSPCC, they've got amazing purposes, you know, so whether that was at King's in terms of supporting and enabling those kind of leading scientists and researchers coming up with cures for, you know, doing amazing work or, you know, Alzheimer's Society trying to create a world without dementia and support everyone that's that's been affected by dementia. And now at the NSPCC, you know, trying to prevent cruelty to children, you know, they're really, really important things. And and I, I genuinely think that I'm in a privileged position that I can work and dedicate me and use my tools to advance those agendas. So for me, that was, you know, working at King's sort of helped me figure that out. And it's meant that I've then made my decisions, you know, along along those lines. So I've looked for organizations that I can really get behind their purpose. So it's not really private, public sector, not for profit. It's not that sort of a question. It's it's more about what what's the aim of the organisation and what's the cause. And it's fantastic to be able to support such brilliant causes and feel like you're really making a difference. Yeah, exactly. And are there any quirks of working in reward at a charity? Are there any particular or unusual benefits which you guys offer, or is there anything which is different from where you worked before that you would say is quite niche to the charity sector? I suppose in terms of quirks, they're, um, they, I mean, I've done, as, as you've said, I've worked in a number of different organisations. Perhaps one of the quirkiest things in terms of benefits or perks that I've come across was a dog allowance. So one organisation <laughs> that I worked in had a dog allowance and it was paid to someone. Who, but the person didn't really have a dog. No idea why they got the dog allowance, but they got a dog allowance. And so we had to deal with that. And they didn't get a dog, even a dog allowance. No, they didn't have a dog. 
But apart from that, no, there's, I think it's, I've not seen anything else particularly, you know, unique to the charity sector. I think, I mean, we do, I think we do do things slightly differently, you know, especially in the charity sector. So Alzheimer's and NSPCC and and most other charities, Um, but certainly NSPCC, all of our funding principally comes from voluntary funding. So that's individual people giving to the NSPCC. So it's not as if we're getting money from from the government or anything like that. So considering that that's where we get our money from, you know, we're really, really careful about how we spend that. Um, And that translates to how we use it for our reward practices, but also our our perks and our benefits for people. So we, we are really really sort of mindful about what we do. But having said that, you know, we do have good benefits packages. um, And certainly I've done a number of reviews over the years and and they are good benefits packages. All the traditional things are there that you'd find in most organisations. But I suppose what we do that's maybe slightly different is that we're a little bit more focused on making sure that they are the right ones for our people, for what our people want and need so that it, we make sure that we are using those, you know, finite resources, those hard uh, resources in a, in a really targeted way so that um, we get the most benefit out of it. So, you know, doing all the usual kind of cost benefit analysis, but really focusing on that um, and understanding our people. Um, I think I think the charity sector probably attracts slightly different people. It's a strange way of putting it, but you know, that there are specific things that attract people to the charity sector and there's there's a great sense of purpose and alignment with the purpose of the organization. So we, we try and really understand the people that are within the organization and make sure that we're giving them what they need. And you'd hope that whatever company organization someone was at that a reward strategy would be focused that way. But I think often the cases where people have budgeted however much money, they just, you know, they'll put an EAP, the classic benefits and everything around that, but nothing's really tailored. But obviously, like you say, you need to make the most of every penny. So you are much more focused, which I think is brilliant. But I do worry, obviously, now in COVID world, the charity sector has been affected so much I mean, you've got no one's really out and about on the street being able to give to charity as much as they would have been before. Has this affected your reward strategy? Have you had to alter it at all during the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that the pandemic has affected the NSPCC. You know, it's affected all of us, but it's affected the NSPCC. I mean, in particular around the way we do things. But again, that's that's as with all organisations. So we deliver frontline services and obviously we haven't been able to deliver them in the the usual way. But, you know, one of the biggest um, impacts is on fundraising. So, you know, we would get our income from things like um, people running the marathon and connecting money. We would get them from people standing outside um, a supermarket with a bucket and um, getting money. So all sorts of things like that is how we get our income and how we're able to deliver the services that we do. So clearly that's been impacted because those people are not able to raise the money in in the way that they normally would have. So one of the challenges has been absolutely to look at more creative ways of maintaining that fundraising, fundraised income stream. 
and and that's a work in progress. And I mean, again, the colleagues at NSPCC have been really, really good, and it's been amazing to see, you know, how they're doing things differently and 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 their new ideas. So that's great. But it does it does clearly have an impact on us as an organisation and and what we do and our plans. In in the reward sphere, we set up a program of work around our pay priorities about 18 months ago, and we'd already started to show progress against those. So we delivered some of those steps, but then the pandemic hit and we've obviously had to revisit that. So we have managed to continue with some of those things, but others we've we've had to pause and, and say, actually, we're just not in a position to do that right now because of the, the financial uncertainty. Um, so, for example, we didn't do a pay award um, this year. We're, we're doing other. We did do other things, which is great. Um, so we covered people through furlough, and we topped up their salaries to 100%. And we did a few other corrective actions. But you know, we had to scale back a little bit. Um, we're now going into the next pay award planning cycle, um, and so we'll start those conversations with saying, okay, so these are the things we'd like to do. Obviously, map that against where we are income-wise and where we expect to be, um, and we'll need to make some difficult decisions there around prioritising. So it, it will have an impact, but I am still convinced um, that we will be showing progress against those activities that we set out, you know, the, the roadmap that we have. It just may be that we, we take those steps a bit more slowly than uh, we'd originally anticipated. And are there any other major areas within the NSPCC which has been affected other than obviously the core area, which is fundraising? I think I think the frontline services is, is, is the obvious one. So we have had to reconfigure how we deliver those services. So we, we run helplines for children and young people. Uh, we go out to schools and do education programs. So all of those sorts of things, counselling that we run, you know, face to face, those sorts of things we're not being able to do at the moment. And yet we know that, I mean, we've had, um, I think it's like a 50% increase in our calls to our call centre. Incidents of domestic abuse have gone up. So there's lots of issues that, you know, people are facing right now, children and young yeah. people, that we want to be there for them. So that's where I think that colleagues have got really creative about how they do that. We, we did a virtual assembly um, a few, I think it's probably about two months ago now. Um, we got Ant and Deck involved. It was really good. Loads of people tuned in and um, I, I tuned in just to see because I hadn't seen one of these assemblies before. And it was about reassuring children about the anxieties that they might have right now around COVID, um, making sure they knew that there was someone there to talk to if they were worried about anything. Um, and it was a really energetic um, event. And that was something new that, that people just developed um, in considering the, the environment that we're operating in. So, so yeah, so we are having to change how we do things. And then also where we are opening up back, uh, we are opening up our buildings, we're having obviously to be very careful in how we operate. Um, so making sure that we take all the normal precautions that, you know, that everyone's doing, but it is having an impact. I just wanted to touch upon again, you said some, obviously the coming uh, inquiries into sort of frontline staff and via the helpline is going up and obviously charities are so crucial in a pandemic and it's not to say that child abuse stops during the pandemic, it's likely to rise, what research has shown and obviously that is awful and it must be awful for your frontline staff 
to deal with too. Do you have anything in place in terms of well-being to sort of help your staff with this, especially when calls are going through the roof during this time? Yeah, I mean, part of our standard sort of offer is recognising that especially those people delivering those services, it's it's a very difficult position that they're in, you know, and they're having to deal with lots of difficult conversations. And that takes, you know, that takes its toll on, on those people. So we, we do have a support package in place for those people. But Throughout um, the pandemic, we've we've beefed up the the whole sort of uh, wellness approach as well. So not just for those people, but for everyone else, because everyone else is also going through a whole range of things. So I mean, one of the things at the NSPCC that's quite strong is that we uh, we're very clear about people being one of our key priorities. You know, one of our priorities is about children, and young people. The other one is our purpose through our people. Um, and then there's a piece around stewarding and protecting, you know, the financial position of the NSPCC. So we make a very clear statement around our people and, and we try to honour that in everything we do. So we've done a lot of things to um, to improve and expand our wellbeing um, offer. So we've done one of the things we did that was in particular around those helpline people, but was opened up to everyone else, was NSPCC in mind, which is um, it's actually a service that was developed by, uh, let me get this right, I think it was um, psychologists, behavioural psychologists for the NSPCC, uh, sorry, for the NHS um, to support their frontline services. And they came and worked with us to develop something for our frontline services. And what it sort of focuses on is things like um, mindfulness, uh, mental health maps, sleep hypnosis, guided meditations, those sorts of things to help people switch off um, and just maintain that mental well-being. So we did that. We did. We, we made sure we pulled together all of our well-being resources into a good wellness hub, which was new. And we've done lots of things to try and connect our people as well so that they could talk about what their experiences were. So we've got a hub where people can share stories and create little groups. Um, we do sort of drop-ins where we call them cup of kindness sessions. So little groups to get together and they just have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and talk about whatever's on their mind. So we have been doing lots and lots of things to try and maintain that that well-being within within our workforce. And it, it's still early days, but already we're getting some really positive feedback from our people through our engagement surveys. And also people coming back from furlough, you know, we've been supporting them whilst they've been on furlough. And they've been talking to us about how good it's been that they've been kept informed about things throughout the whole period and that they feel connected and protected. So it is coming through in, in the feedback that we're, we're having, which is, which is really, really good to hear. Because, I mean, you do these things hoping that it will help people. So when you get the feedback, I think it just it's so important. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to make sure if, whether people are on furlough or not that you keep in touch as an employer just so they know that you're there because you do offer obviously a range of well-being elements as you've mentioned and whether you're on furlough or not they're available and just throughout obviously the work cycle you know just taking that time to sit back speak to someone because you, as you would you know people go for a cup of coffee in the kitchen normally or in the office and you get that but you don't get it working from home and I think some people just get themselves sort of buried in work and you know don't lift their head up so it's definitely important 
Yeah. And another thing I just wanted to pick up on when you said the obviously psychologists came together to put some bits together. From a little bit of uh, LinkedIn stalking, I can see that you have a master's in occupational psychology. And I wondered how that influences your work and reward and benefits. Yes. So, yes, I did. Uh, yeah, I did a degree and a master's in occupational psychology um, a while back now. It's interesting because that was quite a fundamental thing. I mentioned earlier on about working at King's and and really kind of having that moment of realizing what was important to me. And psychology was another one of those steps in my life where trying to understand what is it that that motivates you and interests you. So it is a passion of mine. You know, I think although I'm not an occupational psychologist anymore, so I I used to work in that area, but I don't directly now, it, it just ends up permeating through everything that I do. So, you know, just simple things like motivation theory. So, you know, we work in reward and benefits or what, what's going to motivate people. Um, so what can we put in place um, through our reward practices to motivate people or, you know, talking about equal pay and the gender pay gap? You know, what, what can we do that is going to influence um, perceptions of fairness and equality or taking a broader view? What kind of organizational development um, practices do we need to implement to, you know, to, um, to reduce the gender pay gap? And I think, but I think the one that kind of encapsulates things the most is that total reward perspective, you know, because it takes that really comprehensive view of all the things that people value in the workplace, you know, not just the monetary aspects, but the community, the sense of purpose, the opportunities to develop and, and progress the values and the behaviours, all those things. And so I kind of use the, the, the psychology background to inform, you know, the approaches that we take um, so that, you know, we develop our practices that are going to align with the values and the behaviours of the organisation, the ones that we're trying to nurture, encourage. Or I, I take that really broad perspective of what do we need to put in place to attract and retain our people? It's not just good pay practices. It's, you know, it's that wider offer one of the things that I'm really pleased about at the NSPCC is that in lots of organisations, I've often noted that career progression is a is is one of those key reasons why people leave organisations, and uh, and it's often difficult to do something about that unless you've got you know really good promotion uh, pathways and things like that and opportunities for people. And at the NSPCC, looking at our data, we have a really high proportion of people being promoted. So, you know, they'll start with one job and then they'll go into a more senior job within a period of time um, and they stay with us. So I, I think that's going back to the total reward offer, you know, that's a real benefit that we can provide to people. So how do we communicate that to people so that they realize it's there so that we can attract um, and how can we can encourage people when they're here? So the psychology really comes out in, in so many different ways. Yeah, I would definitely agree that pay, although very important, because obviously money does make the world go round, I think, in many cases. But pay isn't the most important thing when people are looking for a job or whether they're looking to leave. There's been so many studies to show that when people do leave, it's quite often because there's nowhere to progress or they want more learning and development opportunities or the culture isn't right. And it's also something key in graduate studies, which they look for is culture and somewhere they can possibly move around, find where they fit and progress in that sense. So... I've got another question for you now. Um, I'm quite intrigued to hear your answer. As a reward professional and obviously of your um, occupational psychology background, because 
you know, I've read a few things about HR and reward professionals in the charity space. And I wanted to find out your opinion on one of these statements. So the first is that reward professionals in the charity sector are more empathetic in decision making, which can sometimes prove an issue when it comes to procedures such as the structures and dismissals. What would you say about that? Um, that's a very loaded question, isn't it? Or it's a loaded opinion. Sorry, I don't, and that's not you, but yeah, no, it's not me. This is someone on the internet. <laughs> it, it it sort of implies that if if you're people focused in your decision making, then it will lead to poorer outcomes. That they won't be business focused. It, it's interesting. So, I mean, in my experience. I, I don't think, well, I, I don't share that view. I, I don't think in particular that um, people are more empathetic um, in the charity sector compared to others. Um, and equally, even where they are empathetic, I don't, I haven't seen it impact on decision making. So I believe you can be empathetic and still make good decisions, um, good decisions and in a timely way. I also think that actually, if you are people focused, then you can make better decisions and have better outcomes. So that's certainly something that certainly at the NSPCC is quite fundamental. I mean, I mentioned earlier that it's it's purpose through people. Um, and it, it is something I genuinely believe in that if you if you take into account people's feelings, the difficulties, their opinions, if you listen to people and you hear them, then you can have better outcomes. So I disagree with the statement. Um, and and I, I would say that my experience doesn't doesn't align with that. I, I think you can be very people focused um, and make good decisions. Yeah, I would I would agree from the outside looking in. And I'd always always say, oh gosh, can't you speak today? I would also say <laughs> that if you're in the people profession, regardless what sector, you are going to be empathetic because it is the people profession and that doesn't have to impact what your decision making is. Yeah. I mean, another thing that I've observed over a couple of organisations is, I suppose, perhaps uh, a little bit more uh, relevant to the, the sectors that I've worked in. I've had to work with trade unions uh, more often than not. And wherever wherever people have been more people focused and focused on the views of the trade unions and had meaningful conversations with them inevitably it's led to better outcomes so and again and i don't i don't i don't mean to keep going on about the nspcc but i'm i'm really pleased that i've walked into the nspcc and one of my roles is to chair the joint negotiating committee um and i'm able to benefit from a really good relationship that has been built up with the trade unions and that's on the basis of of taking a very people focused approach and and trying to do the right thing by people and engaging with the trade union in a meaningful way on people issues so i i think we benefit from that from taking that that approach and of course so many companies say on so many statements you see on linkedin and things from ceos is that people are the most important Mm. asset and also the most expensive asset so you're going to want to take care of those people yeah exactly there was another thing that I'd read about the charity sector um, compared to other sectors and that I have a better work-life balance. Is that true? I've heard that too. I'm not, I'm not so sure it's that black and white because <clears throat> I think in terms of sort of policies, it's probably about the same. I, don't, I, I haven't noticed a difference between the private and public sector in, in terms of the policies and the access to, you know, to provisions. 
And we know that it's all down to individual behaviour and culture anyway, really. So you could have the best policies in the world, but if the culture doesn't support a good work-life balance, it's always going to be hard. And equally, the thing, one of the things that really stood out to me when I joined at Alzheimer's, because it was the first charity I worked for, um, was how passionate people are and how how dedicated, how much they work to progress those those um, really important agendas, um, which I completely understand. Um, so in terms of maintaining a good work-life balance, that wasn't always maintained. You sometimes had people working really, really hard and long hours because they felt it was absolutely the right thing to do and they couldn't bear the thought of, of, of not being able to help and support those people that needed us. So I'd argue in some ways that it, it goes against having a good work-life balance. But um, I do think that within the charity sector, there's potentially more of a focus on trying to get a good work-life balance. So I suppose, number one, recognising that you do have very passionate people that can easily burn themselves out. You know, if we think about the NSPCC, um, if, if you don't look after yourself, how are you going to be able to support um, children and young people? So you have exactly. to look after yourself. So recognising that, you know, and the importance of making sure that people don't burn out, we do maybe focus a little bit more on, on people and making sure that they are maintaining a good work-life balance. And then also because it is something that we can do and distinguish ourselves from other companies, then again, it's an opportunity for us. So, you know, we we can position it perhaps a little bit more strongly and try to, to live by it as well. So I, I don't know materially whether whether it's that clear a distinction between the sectors, but um, but I do think uh, certainly from the, the charities that I've worked in, we're, we're certainly very conscious of it and definitely trying to promote a good work-life balance um, and role model that, something which I don't always do, but I, I, again, I'm, I'm very conscious of it and I do try. Yeah, and hopefully across all sectors, the pandemic will uh, highlight its importance and hopefully going forward, it'll speed up people understanding the need to have their work-life balance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think in some ways, it's even more important right now for all sorts of reasons. But that balance between work and life, you know, you're, you're out of work life, is so blurred right now that it's it's really hard sometimes, I think, to switch off. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I spoke to someone the other day and they were like, it just all blurs into one, the weekend, everything. I thought, well, definitely don't work on the weekend at least. But I think people just think, why not? Especially in lockdown when you've got nothing else to do. But you need to sort of step away and find something else to do. Yeah. Which leads me to my last question before we wrap up this episode. If you weren't working in reward and benefits, what would you be doing? I think at different points in my life, I probably would have obviously had different answers. But I think right now, from my perspective, when I talk about reward and benefits, I, I do talk about it in the context of that genuine total reward. So, you know, that covers, you know, well-being, it covers in, in, inclusivity, it covers OD, it covers, it covers everything that we do within HR. And that's, you know, that's how I operate. And that's what I come with. And when you go back to the kind of occupational psychology piece, you know, and me making that decision to go down that route, that is what I've wanted to do. As I said before, I've had opportunities and I've been lucky to, you know, that they've come around and I've influenced how they've developed. So actually, I quite like what I do. And I think there's such a scope to work in different 
ways um, on different topics. So I don't feel that I'm in a, a small pigeonhole. Um, so in that context, I'm really happy with what I do right now. I think if if my focus did become narrower, then you know I might be thinking about well, what else could I be doing. But at the moment, I really I really like the opportunities I have um, and the scope that I have to to influence and steer things. And and again, I I genuinely feel that I'm aligned with the purpose, the philosophies within the organization align with mine. So again, being very people focused and putting people at the core. So that works really well for me. Well, that's amazing. If I was pushed, I might say florist because I was a florist many <laughs> moons ago and I quite enjoyed that. But other than that, I'm, I'm very, very happy. <laughs> well, other than being a florist, I think it's great to hear how, um, how satisfied you are with work and enjoy it so much because quite often you'll get people jumping to another answer straight away. So that's really lovely. <laughs> Um, well, that's all we have time for today, Christina. Thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been really interesting to learn about your background and the niche elements reward in the charity sector. I hope you enjoyed our chat. I did very much. Thank you very much, Amber. It's been my pleasure. And I also want to highlight to all of you listening that the NSPCC is an amazing charity. And given many of us may have not been able to give as much to charity as normal this year, it would be great. And though Christina has not asked me to do this, I just understand what a worthy, worthy course um, NSPCC is. So if you have any money to spare this year or as a nice gesture at Christmas time, please log on to their website and donate if you can. But in the meantime, I'd like to say thank you for listening. I hope yourself and loved ones are safe and well. And fingers crossed, you'll be tuning in live to watch the Reward and Payroll Summit and the Rewards next month will be at a TV studio overlooking Powerbridge, London on December 10th and 11th. And Christina will actually be talking on the uh, 10th as well at the event. (laughs) So that's it from me. And thanks, Christina. I'm sure we'll chat soon. Thank you, Amber. Take care. Thanks. Goodbye, everyone.